This is CliffCentral.com. I'm Jonathan And Ramon is present And welcome back Jonathan Well welcome uh, back to you Well yes thank you I was uh, in Gallivanting the, across Europe In the third world countries of Europe um, Yes it was fine Could you, you pee in there. the streets of France? Uh, no I didn't know as, it was, as one does Only when you become a citizen like You have to Oh perform. is that the formal citizenship Right um, Test But I already am So no We didn't have to do it at my time When I was born <laughs> But uh, yes, it's good to be back. And I noticed while I was away, there were quite a few uh, public hearings on the expropriation of our compensation thing. Indeed. We also expropriated your house while you were away. Sorry about that. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, someone cleaned it up very nicely while no. I was away. So thank you whoever did that. <laughs> um, and um, well, and well, I guess we can rope him in. Gareth Anselin, head of policy and governance at the Institute of Race Relations. You almost cocked that up. Welcome, Gareth. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so long, much for having me. Yeah, it's a long title. So, yes, we almost cocked it up. So well, the well, IR, you did cock it up. It's politics and government. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So the IR had a submission as well to Parliament, an oral submission. Um, the Afri Forum did as well and a few other organizations. So the interesting thing about me is the Afri Forum one was the most publicized one. Uh, I'm sure it went on about the NDR, about uh, all sorts of things, uh, which I thought was an excellent presentation. He got attacked mercilessly. The IR was about property rights, and you still got attacked mercilessly by the MPs. So it appears that this thing is well, largely a, just a front for as a public participation process, but really the die is cast, it appears. Um. You know, I, you know, I don't know what to make of this whole land expropriation thing. The, I mean, for me, the fundamental – I mean, the thing you want to do if you want to reposition yourself as a government on something as fundamental as land reform is you need a working document. It just, it just seems like a baseline requirement for me. As a first step principle, you put something out there. You say, listen, this is what we're proposing and let's have a discussion about this. But this idea that you just have an open-ended sort of who knows where it's going to go. You don't know where you stand as the proposer. You don't know where everyone else in society stands. Just a massive free-for-all seems insane. I mean, I don't see how you can arrive at any mutually agreeable solution unless you give some direction to the conversation. So you have organizations like the IRR, which you know takes a property rights angle, and um, AFRI Forum, which tries to explain the kind of political ideology behind the, the ANC's positioning that's got us here, because no one, everyone's trying to cover different bases from different angles. There's no particular thing that they can point at, and um, it, the, the consequence of that is everyone else who you know takes issue with them and fights with them is coming from some other angle. It's just an insane recipe for disagreement, fighting, a lack of cohesion or, or, or agreement. So do you think it's it's planned or just um, – well, I don't want to give the ANC too much credit, but sometimes the lack of a plan is the plan itself. Um, I, I can't see how this works well for anyone. I mean it's – Massively damaging to the government, massively damaging to the economy, massively damaging for public debate, massively damaging for Ramaphosa, who's supposed to be the instigator and leader of this process. 
massively damaging for the ANC because every bit of information that comes out demonstrates how poorly they've done on land reform. Um, I, who benefits from this? I have no idea. The communists in the in the ANC, the guys who've been pushing sort of national democratic revolution, the ones who believe that. Uh, you know, as someone like Julius says, you have to have pain, you know, to, to succeed in your, in your goals. So this is the suffering we have to go through. So all the damage is kind of worth it in the end because we'll all have land and be equal. I mean, that's the, that's the line to the, to, to the, the public. But the uh, reality is, is uh, the guys at the top know exactly what they stand to benefit from. They don't really need an economy if they own the entire economy. You know, um, we need our, our one trillion rand GDP to go around amongst all of us. Um, but if they drop the GDP to one tenth of that, but they share all of it, that's good enough for them. Yeah, I suppose you could make an argument that the kind of anarchists benefit from this, who you know, disruptors and and basically want to introduce some kind of state of chaos as a as a precursor to a revolution. You know, the EFFs of this world. Um, but. Yeah, even them, because of the, the sort of open-ended nature of this conversation and the dire economic consequences of it, their position is sort of getting hedged in every day because Ramaphosa and the NCO are having to come out in a sort of piecemeal way and say, actually, no, we won't take this thing and it's not going to involve this and, and sort of narrowing the ambit every week, but in a kind of unofficial and ad hoc fashion, which is seems to be work slowly moving further away from the sort of extreme positions of the EFF. So, I mean, just based on, on, on what you know, Gareth, and this may not be your strong point, why would ANC go out on a Tuesday evening on the SFB and say, we have taken a position to change the constitution? Because first of all, it's really early in the process. They've played their hands very early and without, without, um, really explaining why they would take such a position anyway. It's a bit strange. It's totally, Baffling to, to, I mean, to make sense of from an outside perspective. And, and I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't know if anyone does, but I suspect it's driven by internal politics as, as all mm. of this stuff is. There's some kind of pressure applied internally or it's the consequence of some sort of deal or it's the only way to appease and, um, nullify some kind of brewing internal faction is to offer some kind of, you know, external scapegoat that can, people can unite around and, and sort of deal with whatever it is going inside the party but it was a totally baffling preemptive thing to say because uh, so i mean obviously now we we are venturing into the conspiracy theory area because i mean well anything could be true uh, it, it, as you say it could be an internal um political fight where certain individuals have said look uh we're going to take away leadership or we're going to um go up against you or whatever it is unless you do this um what about the sort of chinese influence that that's been hinted at recently and and the you know because because the 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 guys who are who are putting things on boards and then connecting them with red string uh (laughs) have done the the farms that they released on this list um you know the afri for that that afri forum list um which does seem to be somewhat correct. There certainly are some farms that the government's interested in. Um, the, the, those farms are also on certain deposits of certain minerals and, or they're in the areas at least of those minerals. And so, uh, we've just, uh, asked the Chinese for a whole bunch of money and the Chinese love, love resources. <laughs> I mean, is there enough there yet? It's a, it's a logical 
thing for me. I mean, it's, it's a logical argument. It may not be true or not true, but it, the logic is there. Yeah, look, I, I think, I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to speculate on, 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 <laughs> well, the, the problem is this, is that the announcement made about changing the constitution preempted the Chinese loan deal. Mm. Um, but I mean, I certainly think the, that the underlying analysis that underpins your points is accurate, that the Chinese have a very serious, as, as demonstrated in many other places throughout the world, vested interest in, you know, whether it's South African property or minerals or mm. whatever it is, basically getting their teeth into the economy and the country. How they go about doing that, I'm not sure, but I would certainly suspect that this loan is not no strings attached, as Ramaphosa says, and there's some very serious strings attached to it. Well, the beauty of South Africa is that, you know, the ANC is in crisis. Thankfully, the other political parties are not. No, I'm joking. Of course they are. <laughs> so, um, We've got such a strong opposition united in their views. They don't waver. They just, you know, they, 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 they stick on path, Ramon. Enough about the EFF. <laughs> Um, but okay, so in response, the, the EFF are just are, are just enjoying the chaos, as you say. The DA, I don't know. Do you know what they're doing in response to this? Because it seems a very little, and b they're fighting about whether B E is relevant or not. Um, at a time when we are literally on the path to Venezuela, I mean, this is a, the the precedent set by Venezuela and Zimbabwe, and they're fighting about empowerment um, in business. It's a bit strange. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the DAA's fundamental weakness, it, it, potentially its biggest weakest weakness, and it, and it's been like this with fairness to Mayamani for it precedes him by some time, is, is its ability to be able to talk on the economy. It's just a long-standing problem. It's never cracked. And look, it's, it's difficult to do that as opposition. It's very difficult to dominate economic debate when you're not in power. Um, but the party does now have, you know, provincial governments, municipal governments. It does have far more credence and significance when it talks about its policies and economics. But it just doesn't seem to care about it. It doesn't seem to authentically be something that the DA cares about. And you could extend that beyond the DA. I mean, the, the degree to which South Africans generally care about the economy um, is dire. And it's been brought home, I think, when we hit the first sort of junk status debate, it's, you know, as ever – when things start to manifest in, in actual things that you can understand that impact on your life, you, you pay more attention to them. And I think South Africa has become a bit more economic focused since then over the last two years or so. And, you know, the firing of Nene, these kind of things have had a real impact and the recession uh, is going to have the same thing. But it remains terribly misunderstood and, and discussed at any meaningful level. And I think the only two journalists who discuss state finances – which for me is like the key thing. You know, there's no money. Sure. None of these um, parastatals are working. The country's bankrupt, going off the PIC, all that kind of stuff are, are Carol Payton and Hillary Joffe. Um, you know, they're the only ones that really look at the balance sheet, government's balance sheet that comes out every month. Um, and and it's, a, yeah, a real shortcoming in South African debate. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, and that's the thing about maybe it's maybe it's, it's a global thing whereby the big, deep problems are hardly mentioned, and the small, stupid social interactions every day, like one of racism, dominates the headlines. But it's like it's really, guys. We hit the, we hit we've hit the ice. What you call it? Iceberg. That's what you call it. We hit the iceberg, and now we're talking about you know which violent concerto we're going to play for dinner, like. What's happening here? Why is there such a lack of focus? And I'm talking about in the media generally, in the media and politics and civil society generally. There are some people who are trying their damnest to 
to bring the most important issues to the table. But I don't, I don't know. There's just a lack of urgency about everything. No, there's a total lack of urgency, and um, you know, I can you can explain these kind of things when it comes to the public, because the public is always easily distracted by whatever the brightest, most sensational light was that last flashed. But very difficult to explain for a party like the DA because, I mean, you can look at every bit of market research done going all the way back to 1994. The economy and jobs comes out as number one every single time. And it is just why would you not relentlessly pursue this? Why would you not pour resources into it? Why would you not have a whole economics team that meets every month to discuss economics? Um, I, I mm. have no explanation. I, I, well, Sorry, my last point, John. No worries. Sorry. I might I have an explanation. I, I think it's about the, 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 the battleground. I think the ANC pulls people into their terms of engagement. And it's always about the social racialism, this nationalism stuff. And then everyone else has to react to it. The ANC never goes for like big grand ideas, or, except for destructive ones. But the opposition for somehow keeps reacting to the ANC's Narrative. Yes, that's true. The ANC has always been very down. good at at um, sort of creating these giant hegemonic wedge issues, which uh, put you in a corner as opposition, and you have to debate on their terms, and they do kind of frame you. And and actually, that's true of almost all governing parties. Absolutely. They have that kind of power. The ANC is particularly good with it, and there are a whole lot of very divisive issues it can use to do that, of which race is preeminent. Um, nevertheless, I mean, it's not really an excuse that you, you need to deal with those kind of things, but you also need to be disciplined in the way you communicate and determine your own agenda. Um, and you know, that in the 2011 elections, local government elections for a period of about three months during those elections, the DA made a strategic decision not to mention the ANC and it was rigorously enforced and literally the party would – the rule was you don't engage with the ANC. If they bait you, you don't talk to them. You don't mention their name. You only talk about Voldemort. the DA's the DA's policy and what the DA stands on stuff. And the DA did very well in that election. Look, a lot of it was because the idea had collapsed and it eats some of the support. But I think an entirely you know, party-focused um, campaign made a big difference. Yeah, so so my theory on this is is really that the DA has a massive identity crisis, um, and it's not it, – well, now it's to the point where it actually doesn't know what it is. But it, it, initially it was – it very much knew what it was. It was the Liberal Party in this country. Uh, it it had uh, it it had generally liberal principles. I mean that in a sort of um, the proper liberal sense, not the American sense of liberal. Um, yeah, the British the British sense. Um, and it, it it had those views, and so on economics, for example, it had quite um, logical what we would consider free market views on on economics. And I think those people are still very much within the DA. Uh, they they certainly aren't speaking as much as they should, um, and they don't seem to be driving policy. Um, and that's because on all topics, uh, the DA the identity crisis has deepened to the point that. Every time the DA used to say something that was just an obviously liberal thing to say, uh, 
in they would get hammered by the media or by the ANC, and generally something like race would be used. Oh, this is a you know this is a white position, or this is a typical colonial position, or something like that would be used against them. And instead of saying, uh, yeah, that was actually the position of colonialists. You're right. Uh, it's also our position, and it's been the position of governments that work and economies that work. Um, so we're running with it because this is where we stand. And if you don't like it, don't vote for us. I mean, I, I'd love to hear the DA actually just say that once on uh, one of their liberal principles. They're more than happy to say it on expropriation without compensation. Glynis Breitenbach will stand up in Parliament and berate the, uh, berate Afri Forum um, and is happy to lose those voters um, on property rights, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But to me, it's just an identity crisis. They don't stand by who they are. And, and as Ramon says, and as you've, you've, you've reiterated, the ANC pulls them into their arena, and then we're arguing ANC policy. And the DA is arguing, leaving behind who they are and arguing whether we could implement ANC policy better. Uh, and I think, I think that's a ma- massive problem. And we've said it on the show before. The DA just needs to stand by principle. And if you don't like it, okay. That's fine, but they seem to believe they've got to be this sort of inclusive tent um, and this broad church and all those sort of cliches. And as a result, well, who are they? Yeah, look, <clears throat> not. I mean, I don't. I don't like subscribing to the big man theory of politics, which we do a lot of in South Africa. And I think one of the problems with um, a lot of the analysis of the ANC and Ramaphosa is this idea that everything flows through him, whereas, you know, actually I think the party's in a, in a lot more control than he is. Ah. Nevertheless, you know, big leaders in particular do play a big role in structuring and informing the way in which a party behaves. And, and political parties usually take on the characteristics of, of their leader. And I think the fundamental problem at the heart of the DA in fact, I would say almost every single problem you can bring back to the leader. Um, and I think Musi Maimani's character is that of a compromiser. Um, much is actually very similar, similar to Ramaphosa in a lot of ways. Um, he, and it's all well-meaning. He wants to bring people together, consolidate people under a, a single banner, be reasonable, um, emphasize this idea that this is a non-racial party above everything else. But the problem is that he doesn't stand for anything. Um, if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. And and one of the lessons that the DA could take from a party like um, the EFF is how brilliantly disciplined and focused that party is on driving issues. They they identify one particular issue at any given time. If it's, it was get rid of Zuma, they got rid of Zuma or helped get rid of him. Um, and then it turned to expropriation without compensation, and they focus on that relentlessly. Malema is absolutely associated with that. You know exactly who he is, what he stands for, what you're getting when you vote for him, and and there's a lot of unanswered questions about Mahamani, and it costs you a lot in the electoral market, that kind of ambiguity. Because in politics, it's quite good to be hated sometimes for positions. And and I find the DA is so afraid of actually offending anyone that could potentially vote for them. Or they appease to people who would never vote for them in the first place. That's the weirdest thing. Like the Ashwin Willems thing. No one cares. Like literally no one cares why a sports presenter walks off a studio. But the DA, boom, two minutes, boom, let's tweet, let's tweet. Everyone, every black person knows how it feels. No, Moosey, they don't. Because they're not millionaire sports presenters. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the, and the DA, I mean, the DA, res- it ex- operates and responds to the Twitter universe in a disproportional way. I mean, it, 
that universe informs the kind of decisions it takes on a daily basis. Which certainly is insane. In, in totally insane. Totally in, in, in terms of day-to-day comms. But just to go back to your point about hate, um, it's not a, you never want to be hated in politics, but what all politics boils down to, every single political choice and position you push must force a voter to make a choice. It must put clear blue water between you and your alternative, and you must know that if you choose A, you are rejecting B. And the DA's problem is that when voters encounter a lot of its communication on a lot of issues, they can't identify A or B properly because the DA seems to be advocating some kind of C-like position in the middle. Yep. And that is how you lose votes. It's certainly not how you win potential new voters over mm. because you can't play people off against well, their opposition. Exactly as you're saying, I can tell you right now, there's blue water for me between COPE and the ANC on expropriation without compensation. It's very clear to me that COPE, Masiwa Lakota, stands completely against the entire idea he is very pro uh, property right, and that's what he said. Now, whether he if, uh, he'll never be in government, but uh, well, he might get a minister post at some point, assuming there was some sort of coalition. But the point is, is that he's unlikely to to be our leader at any point in the future. Um, but I know where he stands, and I know where his party stands. And so, if I'm voting on that issue in the next election, very easy for me to decide. I currently have no idea where the DA stands. Um, on expropriation without compensation. I know they're loosely against it because they have said that, but they've also then um, made very disparaging remarks about many of the oral submissions made to Parliament so that it makes it unclear. It is not clear blue water, as you put it. It's kind of like somewhere in between, and I, I don't fully know. So if I'm voting on that issue, I can't vote DA. Well, I mean, this is – it's exactly what – um, Ramon described earlier has happened to the DA on this. So when land expropriation without compensation first was articulated as an issue, in other words, it was adopted at the ANC's conference, uh, and then more particularly in Parliament, the EFF motivated motion was adopted by the ANC and the, and the EFF. It was very easy for the DA to say, and I think it was very good initially, um, to say exactly where it stood because it could merge the EFF and the ANC's position and it could say, under no circumstances can you nationalize all land. Um, we're fundamentally against this. It will destroy the economy. It was actually – I wrote an article, I think, for reports saying this was great for the DAs. The first time it's had an issue where it can – in a long time where it can stand up and say black post, and white. Post-Zuma. Yeah. Importantly. Yeah. And um, – but what's happened since then is that the, the two positions have disaggregated somewhat. The ANC has allowed, as it always does brilliantly, a whole lot of processes to unfold and determine the sort of public sentiment and position, which is now all over the place. And the, the DA is sort of caught in this ambiguous mess, waiting for some kind of hard position so that it can take a counter position. And it differs from organizations like AfriForum and the EFF, which are like, we know exactly where we stand on this kind of thing. We've got a clear issue, and we don't care what these public processes or anything say. This is our bottom line. Mm. And, yeah, so this this attitude of waiting for the ANC to say something before you can say something costs the DA in these kind of debates. Is it perhaps a problem – you say it's a problem of leadership. Is it perhaps a problem of understanding that a political party can be democratic – well, obviously, it's democratically elected, but as an internal policy, it's, it should not be democratic. Does the DF oh, have absolutely. a problem I mean, with that in terms of there's too many people, too many cooks cooking the broth, so to speak? Yeah. Look, I think 
um, for the last three or four years. I, I don't actually know how position, some positions have been determined in the DA. I think they're sort of done by committee depending what's in the newspapers in the morning. Um, and then they're not properly um, disseminated through the party, so someone else will take a different position. Yeah. Uh, it's all a consequence of being reactive, not proactive. Yeah. If you're proactive, you get to set the agenda, you get to bring everyone on board, and you get to push a line that people know where they stand in relation to it. If you're reactive, because you're a giant organization, different people are going to say different things, mm. different committees are going to decide different positions, and you have this kind of all over the place. Um, I mean, ideal world, you can't always do this, but the daily goings on, the, whatever gets published in the newspaper today should be irrelevant a lot of the time, unless it's a bombshell, um, to your party, because you're, you're, you understand what your guiding principles are. You've made certain decisions on, be it the economy, be it health, be it, um, tax, whatever it, 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 decisions you've made. So the day to day goings on should make very little difference. If, if something comes out, in the paper uh, that the health minister wants to push a certain policy. Um, it shouldn't matter whether that happens one week and another week. There's some other story about a different health policy. Your answer should be generally the same because as a party, you should know exactly where you stand on providing health care. Yeah, it's a five-year cycle between elections. Yeah. I mean, that's what you should focus on, the five years, not not the, the minutiae. Yes. Well, all, all day-to-day political communication should be informed by a strategy. A long-term strategy, which is something is very hard to discern from the DA. I'm not sure if they have one formally, I mean, written on paper, a sort of formal strategy or not. But uh, you work backwards from the strategy. So there are things that happen on a day-to-day basis that you do need to respond to uh, for the record or as a matter of principle. Um, but I agree in that you should use day-to-day communications to – promote your strategy and so actually most of the things that happen in the media should be hooks for you to you know illustrate or drive pre-existing positions that are of strategic importance to the party and as i say you can't do that all the time there are things you need to respond to that are important on a day-to-day basis but for the most part your strategy should inform your communications yeah it's about reiteration of of policies so they've done anc done da eff well i think they just Lie back and, and watch, you know, shit go down, so to speak. I don't, I see that there were some, I was away, so I saw there were like gunshots fired at something in near the vol, uh, which is, I mean, these internal conflicts tend to happen in these very autocratic, um, political parties. Mm-hmm. But I think Malema has them, has everyone by the, the hair, so to speak, and they just puddling along. They're not good, they're not gaining terribly much support, but I don't think they want terribly what, what, They don't want much support. They're well, very what? happy to be sorry. They're very happy to be the, the that intransigent minority party that will dictate, you know, the policy of a far greater, more powerful entity like the ANC. Do you think that's true, or or do you buy the Julius ultimately wants to go back to the ANC and he's going to be the kingmaker with his six, seven, eight percent when the DA when the ANC drops below their majority? Yeah, look, well, that's the big question with regards to the EFF is what their long-term strategy is. And um, I think the party – and I, I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that they're different factions. This is just my impression of the way in which it behaves is somewhat confused about its long-term goal. Its problems are this, is that if you position yourself, which the EFF is now doing, consciously and deliberately in the media as the sort of radical conscience of the ANC um, – then you've got a problem because if you um, 
if the if the ANC does grow or or manages to stay a certain size without you, your your role becomes redundant in effect. Um, you're sort of neutralized at the election. So you can have claimed to have done all these kind of things, but it didn't result in any support and no one actually voted for you. And then you've got a massive identity crisis because, and political crisis because your very thing that you have positioned yourself as resulted in no votes. Um, and I think Malema and other people in the party are doing sums about what the long-term point of this organization is. If it is to actually bring about a revolution and – you know, if a socialist utopia and all its various goals, then it needs to be able to grow as a political party. And it's struggling to do that at the moment. At least the by-elections post-Zuma suggest that it's struggling to do this in a big way. There are areas in which it's growing, but it, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any fundamental breakthrough. It's not like it's going to come out of 20% in this election by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and that's a real problem for your message and who you are and what your purpose is and why you exist. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what the solution is. I, th- I mean, this election in 2019 is going to answer a lot of big questions for a lot of political parties. I mean, it's key for Ramaphosa to get a mandate that is hopefully not in the 50s as far as the ANC is concerned. I mean, he'll want to get 60% and above. It's key for the EFF because it needs to be able to show that all the bluster and shouting and radicalism has resulted in some actual support. Otherwise, it's all been for nothing. And it's absolutely key for the DA because this is the first national test of a, of a new leader and the party's been floundering for the last six months. So this is a big election coming up. Yeah. I mean, I just – on the EFF thing, uh, you know, I've since 2009, I've sort of said that uh, the only thing I've ever believed Julius when he said uh, – because he's, he lies all the time and he's now being mocked quite rightfully as being a flip-flop. But um, – the only thing I've truly believed that he said is that he will die an ANC member. He he will forever be an ANC member and he will live and die as one. Um, and I just think if you're being smart politically, what you do is you go, all right, well, the ANC is on a downward trend generally. At some point, they, they drop below the 50% mark. What what allows me to re-infiltrate, become a cabinet minister or become um, – uh, a member of the top six. Well, if I'm able to give them the power back, and um, when they drop to forty-eight percent, mm-hmm. then that will that will probably propel me into that position. I could I could do the same thing now. I could cynically say, well, who is being left behind by the ANC by the DA? Maybe it's the black middle class. So maybe I could cynically start a party that only appeals to the black middle class. Uh, I talk about issues that matter to them. Uh, and I only try to capture their vote and well, they're about six, seven million people, but let's say a good uh, 20% of them vote. Uh, that probably puts me with, I think it'd be 20, 20 odd seats in parliament. Um, I could very cynically do that and go, well, at some point the DA might take power. The ANC might drop, but the DA will need power with a coalition, which um, what's, um, uh, what's his name with uh, talking about coalitions? Leon Schreiber. Uh, Leon Schreiber. Um, uh, so, so, you know, and I could, I could say, well, that'll position me perfectly. I don't need to join the DA now because I'm going to fight a whole bunch of DA. I've got to go to this stupid school to start off with. But other than that, um, I've got to fight a whole bunch of structures to get my way up to the top. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it this way. Um, and I, I really believe that that's, that's, the, the Julius plan. I, I'm not sure their identity crisis matters because even if they can just hold eight percent, I think that that's their strategy. 
Look, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think Malema has always um, wanted to return to the ANC. And if you look at the kind of things he said when he was expelled, you'd be an ANC member for life. Uh, you know, his blood is black and gold and all sorts of colors, not red. Um, and he's, you know, going to return to the ANC and he's going to lead the ANC one day. I absolutely agree that I think that is uh, something he wants to do and something he wants to use the EFF with. But this is a problem that all you know, one one person parties find out. Yeah. You start a political party and it takes on a life of its own. And there are a lot of people that are invested in this organization now that are not necessarily of Julius Malema's position or share his particular history and fallout with the ANC. They they legitimately want a platform for radical socialism. Uh, they don't believe that the DA is rede- um, the ANC is redeemable in any kind of you know revolutionary way. And have invested a lot in this party, and yeah, you need to bring everyone on board with you if you're going to go back into the NC. And the mm. longer a political party exists, the harder it is to do that. And I'm just looking forward to the day Malema has a, a proper opposition uh, in the in the EFF who wants to take control. Like if you can have two camps, I want to see how how he manages that. If there's a a proper challenger to the throne, I think it will end in bullets. Uh, which, yeah. which, which, as as these things tend to happen in these like you know hardcore authoritarian parties, uh, it will be quite fun to see. <laughs> I think uh, well, it has already happened to, to smaller extents. Uh, there was not long after they started, there was a challenge. I forget the guy's name. Um, Andile. No, no, there was another guy, but Andile was there was one from Andile, but there was another guy involved, and I'm told that at branch level, at uh, in the EFF, you do not uh, kind of. Uh, speak ill of of dear leader, otherwise you are quickly dispensed with, and, and that's not in a in a murderous sense just yet, but uh, certainly in a political sense, you are gotten rid of. But, but you wrote a very interesting piece about the EFF. I think it must have been last year by now, where you look at the turnover rate of MPs and people in uh, in the, in the legislatures across yeah. the the country, and you said it's very high. I, I believe you said it was close to sixty percent, something to that effect. Sixty percent. Uh yeah, in Parliament for the the National yes. Assembly and the the National Council of Provinces. Um, that, so basically, you know, sixty percent of the of the EFF caucus is different to what it was when it was first elected in twenty fourteen. And I must actually update that document because I think it's had some new, even further new MPs since then. But it, it's linked to what Jonathan was talking about. I mean, this absolutely authoritarian code of conduct, which if you read it for the EFF. Um, there's there are about eight or nine clauses for which any person inside the EFF can be have found to either be colluding with another party, bringing the name into disrepute, not you know implementing the EFF's radical agenda satisfactorily to dismiss people, um, and so it is almost impossible, I would imagine, to express a view um, that is critical of the leader or the leadership or the party internally or externally that doesn't violate one of these, yeah. uh, which gives the leadership this massive authority to be able to dismiss people on any grounds at once, really, um, who are problematic or uh, critical of the party. Can, can I ask why – you know, this is interesting to me because I, I think most people don't know that about the EFF and the internal workings of the party. But when the DA has a vote – on how they're going to change their rules, and it results in Patricia DeLille being ousted, for example. It's national news, and the EFF uses it against them. And not one person in the DA turns around and goes, 
hold on a second. Like, we're the German police, but you're the freaking SS. Like, um, shut up. <laughs> yes. Um, no, no, they, I mean, they, well, look, the, the EFF has not, uh, it has a lot of the characteristics of a authoritarian party. It's actually very successfully implemented. Um, internal discipline, it's brutal on the sort of one message, one step, one hand clap attitude to the way in which it communicates. It does very successfully. Malema has all the characteristics of a kind of charismatic, um, you know, dictator. Um, and, one of them are these internal documents, which are actually mirror the ANCs. I mean, at front and center is democratic centralism, this idea that um, – which there's so much that Malema has taken wholesale out of the ANC. Um, one of them is this idea, which is this Leninist idea that, you know, we disagree internally. A majority wins out on the day and mm. then everyone gets into line. Yeah. And there's no external idea that there was any disagreement. Once you – once that internal decision has been made by a majority – that is everyone's position. And, yeah, I mean, it brutally implements that kind of thing. It's very effective at it. So on to, on to a few happier things. Um, <laughs> the ANC quotes Twitter account, fast yeah. becoming one of my favorites. Yeah. How on earth? Okay, for, and opposition quotes. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's the new one. But for those who don't know, so basically you just take quotes from ANC members going back, I don't know, till I don't know. It goes back about 20 ever. years, I think. There's no time cap. There's no yeah. time cap. How on earth do you remember these quotes or research them? Or I mean, because I remember reading them like, oh yes, I remember that from like twenty two thousand and eight, and you completely forget. You know, oh, she did say that stupid thing. Like, how do you yes. know which quotes are the most ridiculous? Because it's difficult to find the more ridiculous quotes of ANC because there have been hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Well, it's a benefit of my. Occupation, you know, I mean, I was 11 sort of years in the DA as an opposition researcher. So you build up massive databases of what the ruling party said and the alliance members and so on and so forth. And I mean, I've, because I've carried on writing, I've, you know, over the five or six years since about politics, my primary concern, I've kept all that stuff up. So I, I mean, I, I have, it just occurred to me, I was just looking at my, <laughs> Laptop one day that I have these gazillion quotes on my laptop, which many of which are totally wacko and mad. And a lot of some of the others are quite serious and some of them are very good from a kind of hypocrisy point of view. They make perfect sense at the time, but are now rendered completely mad by the way the party's acting today. And so I just asked, you know, the Twitter whether they thought they'd like an account and people seemed to think it was a good idea and it's done pretty well since then. Yeah. And is, do, you, do you pick themes of the day or do you just uh, – obviously you have to you know, sort of react to the news of the day and, and see what uh, what will what quote will fit or do you just take like the most ridiculous ones and like, here you go, public, this is what they used to say and uh, still say? Um, no, most of them are – I sort of will do like a big cull at the beginning of the week and have sort of 60 in my drafts on my phone and then just release them over the course of a week. But if something does happen, if an issue does break, like the fuel price or um, – uh, the recession or something like that, it is quite easy to try find ones that work from a contradictory or hypocrit hypocritical point of view and put those out quite quickly. But basically, yeah, it's just I just take a chunk off my laptop and then release them slowly. Yeah, I'm thoroughly enjoying the accounts. Um, the hypocrisy is quite interesting. Do you think that a lot of that is 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 just driven by politicians say what the right thing is to say at the time? Uh, and then when it sort of 
when things change, they just change, you know, they, they go with the wind wherever it goes. Or did we at some point have, for example, an ANC who was truly against fuel price hikes and taxing the hell out of um, fuel for their own benefit? Uh, or well, I, th- I think there, there are different categories of, of these kind of um, hypocritical things. One of them are one of the, the most legitimate, in other words, the most excusable from my point of view, is when a party legitimately changes its view. Um, evidence changes, and, and as with any good intellectual, uh, the facts change, the party adopts a different position, which yeah. is fundamentally, and that's fine. I mean, it might be funny to look at the two extremes, but that's understandable. Then there's the kind of expediency type of um, hypocrisy in which, and this usually happens on an individual, not a party basis. So you'll be caught out by something that uh, is difficult to explain and you'll just adopt a position in an interview in order to be able to appease the questioner or, or try to be favorable to the market. And then lo and behold, it's not actually what your party's position was. But then there are the more fundamental kinds of hypocrisy, which I think you're alluding to over the fuel price. Whereas if you look at the stuff that the ANC said in opposition from 1990 through to about 1994, well, through to the election, there are a whole range of issues in which it was almost entirely comparable with the way in which the DA behaves today and the positions it takes. On the side of the public, backing you know moral outrage on, on things like VAT and the fuel price hike. Um, and, and no holds, you know, colors to the mask. This thing is inexcusable. You, you're behaving appallingly and we absolutely condemn this thing only to categorically change when it got into government. Um, I have a little bit of sympathy in that all opposition parties learn life's more difficult when you're in government and not outside. But a lot of these positions are not things to do with the kind of constraints of power. They're actually to do with ideology. And yeah, it's switched on some really big stuff without explanation. Actually, that's the key point. The problem is, if you take a different position, you need to explain how you – it's my problem with floor crosses. You know? I don't mind people legitimately and authentically changing their worldview and saying this party is not for me anymore. I want to go to another party. They need to explain to the public how you've changed from being a nationalist to being a liberal or from being a liberal to being a fascist or whatever it is that your switch is. You can't just say I now support the NC. It's just not good enough for me. Well, I was about to lose my job in the in the DA, so I went to the ANC, yes. and I quite like this two million rand a year. Yes. Um, it does me well. Well, then there were two two DA MPs in PE who just changed over uh, last week. There yeah, councillors. Councillors, that's yeah. right. Well, yeah, let's talk about that quickly so, since you brought it up. So Nelson Mandela Bay. So the, 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 there's a coup. Athol Trollope says it's illegitimate because there was there weren't the right numbers, and a few, I think three at the end of the day, DA councillors switched over. Uh, one originally for yes. the vote, and two subsequently. Um, I, I I can't see this being a good thing for anyone, if if I'm really honest, uh, because the new mayor is a UDM guy who is disliked extensively by by everyone and already you know 10 days after the fact treasury sends a letter saying oh there's already irregularities in the way you're looking at uh, finances and tenders of the of the municipality so okay maybe it's just to massage julius's ego because he says trollope will go and it's been a long-standing position that he will take out one da mayor to show that he's powerful and he picks the white one of course because he's a racist but Six time lucky. I, I can't see how this helps 
anyone at this particular time. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see the way in which that plays out in the in the polls, and and I don't know the answer to it because they're competing problems. So on the one hand, I would agree with you: people hate this kind of internal infighting and messiness. It drives up voter apathy. They can't distinguish who's right or wrong, and a, sort of a pox on all their houses. Um, on the other hand, another very strong practical reality in power in South Africa is that power matters, um, especially to ANC voters. Um, and this idea of being in control, being, you know, the predetermined force that's going to govern forever, um, plays very well and they now have power and they can use it to extract money and tenders and all the kind of things that they do and facilitate patronage and that all has an effect. Um, on the other hand, it's been very good for the DA because yeah. what this whole debate has done and I would have said it was less good if it was just Nelson Mandela Bay, but the fact that it happened in Shwani as well means that the DA has had huge amounts of publicity for its service delivery record and to play it off against the ANC. And it's got the perfect kind of contradiction in the, in Nelson Mandela Bay where there's a book literally about how this party stole the city that it can juxtapose against its service delivery record. So, yeah, I, I, my sense of it is you're probably about nine months away from an election. Give or take. Uh, the Now you take over power. So if the DA hasn't done much in your area, by the time you come around to voting and you think the DA was quite poor, you're not blaming the DA because the guys in power aren't the DA, right? Um, and so – and even if they wanted to do a great job, which I don't think they do, but even if they wanted to, I think nine months is, 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 is quite a short period of time. Um, so they let the DA off the hook for their failings. Uh, and so when it comes around to vote the next time, people might actually, who weren't going to vote for the DA might say, well, actually these ANC EFF guys have been, UDM mm. have been in power now and, and, and things are no better. So let's go back to, I'm happy to give the DA my vote. Um, it just it just seems like it lets the DA off the hook. And if the DA were doing a good job in your area, well, either they have to continue doing that, which that doesn't seem to be what their plan is. They want access to to the funds, uh, so that then will reinforce entrenched DA voters already. I, I, surely, come the next election, this backfires. And the EFF basically loses that control because it, it it was close. Uh, that was the closest metro. Um, the DA was very close to taking it and having it outright and not having to ask any questions. Yeah, look, um, I it's the one thing you have to be careful about is is a lot of the analysis of by elections and local government, um, you know, shenanigans matters less. Um, when it comes to national elections, South African voters behave a bit differently at national level. It it might manifest more on, on the provincial ballot, but nationally, when it comes to a national election, this, you have to have done something really profound, of which this might qualify. I'm not writing it off. Um, the sort of you know to and froing in, uh, of the of the government of Nelson Mandela Bay. People tend to vote for other stuff when it comes to national elections. Um, and the power of the overarching power of sort of party identities tends to play a far bigger role in determining people's choices. So I think the real impact will be, um, in the next local government elections. Um, I'm not sure whether you'll see a profound, well, it's almost impossible to actually tell because it's hard to track back to what the cause is. Um, it'll be 2021. 
Yeah, I'm not correct? sure. They're usually yeah. about two years or a year after the after the national election. So we'll see. I don't know if it's going to manifest in any fundamental voter change in behavior in the Eastern Cape. Maybe it will on the provincial ballots. I'm not sure. Do you think there's any use of the DA uh, being in not a coalition, because they refuse to say that word, a partnership with the EFF and uh, the other metros? Um, because it's, I mean, they're so different at a national level and they're attacking each other at a national level on, on core, core issues. Yeah. Yet they're still somehow working in Java for some reason, maybe because Herman Mashaba appeases them a bit too much for my liking. But they try to take, um, Sun Sumanga out, uh, who we'll talk about in a moment. But is it worthwhile keeping these coalitions together for the DA? Well, I think it is. Yes, um, it's it's a difficult choice, and and you could probably argue it's not um, just as forcefully. The key thing about coalitions, though, is consistency. You need to have a very clear idea internally of why you're doing this coalition. You need to explain that to your voters, and then you need to stick by that. Simultaneously, you need to have, have you have to have a very clear idea of what your bottom line is, and at what point you will walk away. And voters need to understand those two things. They need to understand we're, we're in a coalition before this reason. And if this red line is crossed, we're out of a coalition. And the EFF is making that very difficult for the DA. It's playing off different metros against each other. It's got complete double standards in the two different metros as to why it's behaving the way it is. Um, Mayamani's approach and the DA's approach seems to be we need to try and make these coalitions work no matter what, and and I get that because I think no matter what, it is better than what an ANC government would deliver, particularly with the EFF as a minor sort of only voting informally on the budget and the election of the mayor, not actually having a say in the way in which governments are structured and certainly not having its hands on the on the treasury or the, the finance portfolios. So I get that, um, and I think the DA is right to stand by it, and I think it's good for the party to be able to demonstrate what it can do in practical terms. I think the other thing that the EFF and the ANC realize because of what happened in Cape Town is that if you are able to run a stable government and deliver for five years, very hard for the opposition to get its foot back in the door, especially the ANC, which is totally useless as opposition politics. I mean, it doesn't have the faintest idea how to be an opposition party, what to do, how to behave, how to drive an agenda, how to communicate, what issues to do. It's just not in its universe at all. And so it's in its interest to permanently disrupt these coalitions because if the DA gets that kind of foot in the door, a five-year reasonably stable delivering coalition, it's going to have profound implications on the votes in those areas. Okay, so it might be worthwhile, even though the EFF tries to take you out at each, at each turn. So, so speaking of Tuane, uh, the mayor of Tuane is now the candidate for the Gauteng uh, Premiership. And you, I think you, your tweet was quite accurate. Like This just shows like the – what is the true word? The dearth or the glut. I can never remember the dearth, the lack of leadership in the DA where they have to just you know position people in power to other positions of power. It just shows that there's – Lack of leadership within that, that structure already. Yeah, I think there is authentically a lack of leadership depth inside the party, and so it is forced to do things like, you know, get a mayor to restand as a premier only two years into his term as a mayor, which is problematic for the city. And um, they, they might have done an assessment that they're not going to win Gauteng and it doesn't matter. Um, but I do think that there, yeah, authentically, if you look across the country, there's, there's a real problem with leadership. 
and at national level as well. Um, there are very few – there are some, you know, there's a handful of very good um, MPs at national level with, you know, with a lot of status and experience and skill. Um, but, you know, out of a caucus of 100, there are very few. And there doesn't seem to be any natural – it's actually quite healthy to have – um, an alternative – I don't want to use the word faction because people automatically think that's going to war. But alternative group view inside a political party, normally that amalgamates around an individual who is seen as the leader of that group. But it, it, it's quite healthy to have that kind of competition. The DA has it at the moment, the sort of internal conflict between, I don't know, liberals and – I don't know what the other groups. Social Democrats social is probably the the polite term that they would call themselves. The Black Caucus, that's run by three white men. No, I don't. I don't think the stuff's cross cutting. <laughs> Remind you being a troll. It's true. Demographics. The Black Caucus is like James Self and two other chaps, supposedly. <laughs> Not that it exists anywhere except in the minds of the media, but yeah. Yeah, I don't look. Um, between these sort of two views um, as to which way the party would go, but they don't seem to have any real leaders. And Myanmar himself seems to fluctuate between the two groups. So it's not like he always yeah. – Is it? Is um, it that they don't have lead? I mean we had Khaleb Kachalia in the studio and it was a good podcast and um, he said a lot of things that made me go, oh, okay. Um, you know, uh, these, was, are, these are – what? was principled. Yeah, these are nice things to hear from, from someone that's from the DA. Yes. Um, and if – so if it's true that they did an assessment and they aren't going to win anyway and Khaleb maybe is a little bit too strident for their luck, he actually says, this is where I stand and no, I'm not moving on that. Um, <laughs> which I don't, isn't, isn't the party I, I see at the moment coming from the DA, but what would be the problem with put, letting him, letting him win that race and, 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 and be the, be the, be the face for, for Khateng for the next elections? I, I can't, I, the thing is, is you're saying that there's there's not a lot of leaders and there's not a lot of potential, and that is partly true. But at the same time, as when people put up their hands, mm. um, unless they're, you know, it's like a high school, unless they're part of the in group, then it doesn't seem like they get given a shot. Um, Look, I, I can't explain that. I mean, I don't think there is a material difference between Khalib and Soli. I actually think Soli is pretty good for what he's done, and I think Khalib is pretty good, and they're, and they're both worthwhile candidates. I don't know why they wouldn't have chosen him. I, just, I yeah. mean, they had him as a – I mean, it's not a criticism of Soli necessarily. No, no, I totally get what you're saying. And, uh, I mean, he was a, a mayoral candidate or – yeah, mayoral candidate in Ooh, 2016, yeah. so the party obviously – Backs him as as being able to operate at that level. Um, I don't see the downside. I don't know what the internal politics are that arrived at Solly, but I suspect it had a lot to do with him being black at the end of the day. Um, Ooh, ouch! Yeah, yeah I think I think except want... Caleb is black in the, in the expanded <laughs> definition. Yeah, but I, I honestly think it boiled down. To, look, I don't. I don't demean Sonny in any way. The guy's very good, and obviously he's run a great show. Well, that's the whole problem with BE, isn't it? Um, But I think at the end of the day, the DA wanted a black mayoral candidate um, for Shwani, and that was the fundamental primary, you know, motivating factor. Now, he might well have – this isn't to detract from his merit or skill. I don't want to suggest this is some kind of affirmative action appointment. Um, it's just that the party would have nothing to have lost, I think, by having Khalib. Mm. He might not have been a black – um, mayoral candidate, but as you say, you know, um, he's not white and, um, he's very good. Would have extended their, um, leadership 
capabilities and depth because you learn being a leader in a formal position. And Sonny could carry on doing an excellent job in Schwani. Exactly. And then uh, he can take his turn next time with the track record. Yeah. That makes the most sense. But we just spent, okay, the best part of an hour talking about how, you know, politics actually won't save us in this country, <laughs> Gareth. I mean, are you, I'm not despondent because I sort of, I, I sort of like the chaos. It's like something to fight for in a way. But I mean, you who do this every day, you must be a very bored with, with politics and be, are, are you, are you sort of despondent? It's like, are we so, not a, Past the point of no return, so to speak, but there's just like nothing. There's no grand ideas, no grand visions. It's just the the same crappy things every day. Oh, I'm definitely quite depressed at the moment about the state of affairs. I mean, the the um, every single issue that you think about, it's it's difficult to come up with any one. Alternative, one positive sort of counterexample that you can turn to. I mean, I was trying to think the other day of, is there any public institution that is working well and efficiently, and 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 was a good idea? And you know, I, I sort of came up with the car train, which sort of works quite well. People seem to like it. It's, it has people that seem like something that might qualify. But it's, but it's a public-private partnership. Okay, but whatever. I mean, you know, the government conceptualized it and implemented it and it worked and whatever it's structured, it seems to be something that works uh, more than it doesn't. Outside of that, I was like, what? There's nothing. <laughs> I mean, how is that possible that, that this many public institutions are just in a state of crisis? And, you know, we see the biggest icebergs or tips of the biggest icebergs in the public, you know, the nature of SARS or the PIC sure. or whatever, ESCOM. There, there are about a thousand SOEs out there. I mean, can you just imagine the state that these other institutions must be in? Um, there are whole parts of the South African universe that we don't even look at. Like the state of our museums and, and um, galleries um, are just beyond – I mean, they're totally underfunded, falling apart um, – in a real state of disrepair and, and it's just we don't have room to talk about this in South Africa because yeah. there's just other stuff that's more important. Um, but as an ordinary person, you experience this every day. You encounter all these smaller parts of the state that you don't um, you know, encounter in the newspapers. You go to your local library or you have an interaction at the local police station or you – and it's just – honestly, nothing seems to work and it, it is profoundly – Innovating when it comes to, you know, enthusiasm for a better future, which is yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, in, in my line of work, I have to go to to courts and uh, the master's office of the high court. And uh, the a few months ago, uh, I went there; it was closed, and uh, asked around. No, no, they haven't paid rent for three months, so so the landlord kicked them out oh. until they paid their rent. <laughs> I was like, really? Yep, that's, uh. that, that's it. That's it. The the most of the high court, the, the curator of all deceased estates, all trusts, all liquidations in Johannesburg and in Houting didn't pay their rent on time. Well, yeah, for well, three months. <laughs> I mean, half the municipalities, more than half the municipalities don't even pay their electricity to ESCOM. They only get away with it because the ANC is in charge of the provincial administration. I mean, the first thing I remember the DA did in the Western Cape, one of the first things was threaten to turn off um, the water to to the sorry when they first took over the city in Cape Town in 2006 was to threaten to turn off the water to the province because it hadn't paid its bills 
and it could only get away with that because it had ANC people in the city. Right. Um, so, yeah. And then, and then every, every year there's an audit, municipalities, 7% are like unqualified audits, you know, 7% of municipalities, yes. which amounts to like a dozen out of out of how many hundreds um, there was what other I mean even just last week there was a, a building in Joburg the Houting Department of Health building just yeah 20% fire what do you call it they just weren't compliant oh, with yeah, not compliant with, with regulations and yeah. three people died firefighters died well, look, well, why, are we, why are we trying to depress each other here's I mean I, I wrote a column <laughs> a while ago about how big the numbers are. So, in fact, you can't actually get your head around it. If you look at like two of the big ones, take water and roads. So, roads are managed by three different levels of government. They're national roads, provincial roads, and local government roads. Um, and there's no consolidated figure. There's no department that actually takes the backlog, road infrastructure backlog at national level, provincial level, and municipal level, which is the hardest to do because it's so complex and um, disparate and comes up with a composite figure of this is what our road infrastructure backlog is. But you do get snippets of this kind of thing. So you'll hear, for example, that, you know, there's a 200 billion rand backlog for our national roads, which doesn't sound too bad. And that figure is about two or three years old, I think. Then Herman Mashaba will come and say, actually, we've got a 140 billion rand backlog just for Johannesburg roads. The Limpopo Roads Agency's backlog for just Limpopo Roads is 160 billion. And you try to, I mean, I could only find about 10 or 12 of these figures, but you're over a trillion by the time you've got about 10 of them. And that's about 10% of all the figures that are out there. And by the time you put all these things together, the number is so astronomical that I don't think you can get your head around it. And, and what it basically means is it can never be addressed. It's too big. The debt on it grows exponentially. The roads decay at a rate that can't be kept up. Unless you, know. you let the private sector deal with the roads, <laughs> which, yeah. which, 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 yeah, might well, be the only the way problem, to solve though, our with problem. This private sector stuff. I mean, you take SAA, you'd have to, I, I don't, you, you well, couldn't buy. No one would buy it. It's well, completely not now. bankrupt. No, yeah, you'd yeah. have to make it work before someone could buy. No, it. You, what you'd have to do if you wanted to take over SA as a private entity, I would imagine, you is that you would need to. Yeah. So the problem is, is that you would need to establish a new company called Airways South Africa instead of South African Airways or something like that, so that you didn't take on the debt, and then you'd have to transfer the routes. The problem is, is that I don't think it's that easy to transfer the routes no, sure. uh, because it's it's a whole new process, and only ownership of those routes, I think, is specific to. And I think the problem now is the debt is so massive that uh, from what I understand from you know, people who understand the airline business, it's not possible to turn SAA around. No, margins are razor thin no, anyway. It's just, mean, too, it's just too deep. And, and, and no. do you think, Gareth, uh, do you think that all this is about ANC control for literally patronage and, and funding purposes? There's no rational or reasonable reason why – there should be a thousand SOEs or the government should control all the roads or the government should control all electricity production in yeah. the country. Like there is no logical reason other than self-interest. And that's well, what, and that is most I think depressing you've got to be thing careful to me. Because I think one of the problems that you have if you of a particular worldview like, like I and you are about the way in which you should structure the state and incorporate the private sector into making things work is that you kind of assume a, that there's a disjuncture in logic. So, so 
we have a picture of the state that looks like this, and there are a whole lot of things that you could privatize. There are a whole lot of things you could work together with the private sector for, um, and it makes perfect sense. But I just don't think that the ANC sees it that way. They don't conceive of – it's not like they make a decision to go against logic. I think they conceive of all of these things as the state. And saying let's you know sell part of SAA or whatever to them is kind of like saying – you want to take this wall away from my house. It's like, why would you do it? It's not a house anymore. It makes no sense to me, you know. Whereas we don't see it as a house with walls that are connected. It's just a different view of it. And there's a, it's not like, that's why you're not going to out logic them on this stuff. It just doesn't work like that. (laughs) They have a different world view of how it's seen. I'm not the government if I don't have a state airline. And I'm not the government if I'm not providing my citizens with electricity directly. Yes. And, and, and there is obviously an ideological basis to all this kind of stuff. You know, it's like heavily influenced by socialism and, and a centralized state and kind of paternal role for, for the governing party, which is itself paternal in nature. Um, but it sees this as an extension of itself, of as, as one entity of which it has its claws in all the different parts. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a religion at the end of the day. It's, it's, that's exactly what it is. And, yeah. and I think, what do you think would happen if they admit that they failed? Like at a fundamental level. Cause they say sorry sometimes. Like now they blame, they used to blame apartheid. Now they blame Zuma for the recession. Um, but I mean, do you think? And white monopoly capital. Still. But do you think that there'll come a time where they'll say, listen, like we fucked up royally here because they know the stats about education. They know, you know, 80, whatever, 60% of grade fours can't no, read or write. I don't think they, they can know ever. all these things. I don't think they can ever say they failed. <clears throat> and it doesn't work like that either because. The fundamental break for them is 1994 or 1990, whenever they, you know, were unbanned or, or defeated the, the apartheid state, um, and that is the point of comparison. And you would need a new point of comparison to be able to say that you failed in the way that that you are suggesting. Um, and I think that can only happen in retrospect after a crisis or a collapse, in which yeah. people inside the the revolution or the movement are detached from it by a collapse or a crisis and are then in five or ten years able to look back at it and go, we failed then. But in the moment, I don't think it's possible. I, I tend to agree with that. In the sort of test ground for that is is the Western Cape and, and, and Cape Town. Um, I don't think the DA is at risk of losing that anytime soon. But I think as time passes, they will become at greater risk of losing it. And the reason is is because – when they took it back from the ANC, things were bad in that city and that province. Um, obviously, the city first, then the province. But things were were bad. But they were they were cosmetic things. There was no great crisis. There was no water crisis, for example. There was no uh, you know rights crisis like apartheid. Um, there just wasn't a crisis. There was just decay. And the DA took a lot of that back, and certainly a lot of stuff works a lot better in Cape Town, for example, than it did before they took over. But I don't think people notice that stuff as much. And over time, their memory fades of you know uh, stuff not working in Cape Town yes. city centre, the economy not being particularly strong, uh, companies yes. not doing business there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I do think that that over time that that becomes a big problem um, and a threat. Is, yes. you know, for the, for the DA, for example, of the ANC rising back up and going, yeah, but, but look at all these uh, problems the DA has. And the DA will go, yeah, but remember when the ANC was in charge and people go, no, yes. actually we don't. Um, yes. It wasn't that bad. 
DSS well, mini standard, a, yeah. There's a there's an important point to make on this, which follows on from what Jonathan's saying, which is that you know one of the fundamental problems with um, these administrations that the DA takes over the metros and stuff is that they inherit a huge amount of debt. Um, most of them, and in fact, Nelson Mandela Bay was on the brink of bankruptcy, um, and Schwani and Joburg had the same kind of problems. And this, a lot of that goes to revenue collection. But as a resident, oh, and sorry, just before I get into that, obviously you want to collect rates so that you can fund your economic program. The vast majority of which whoever is in government goes to, um, you know, alleviating um, things like water. You get rebates on electricity and funding service delivery for those kind of things to impoverished areas. Inability to correct rates means you can't provide those kind of things, but because the ANC is able to just rack up these kind of debts to fund its program mm. of action, the person on the ground doesn't experience any different. The, you know, they get electricity, they get water, they get their rebates, they see like, you know, a school or is being maintained or a house or something is being built. They don't understand that the people that are delivering this are about to run out of everything. Everything's going to switch off if you bankrupt yourself. Um, and so the DA takes over, improves rate collection, you know, manages to fund all these kind of programs, but it's effectively for the person on the ground delivering the same thing that they were before. And it's yeah, very hard to illustrate to those people the fundamental difference and security that they now have. Yeah. Um, no, that's very true. I haven't noticed a discernible difference in Joburg since Mashaba came over, except they really want money. A lot quicker than before. Uh, I was, and more of it. I was, oh, yeah. But my, I don't think you will for the first five years. I mean, you, you've just got to fix the way the system operates for the first five years um, before you can start to deliver meaningful stuff. I mean, it is a huge amount of work to turn around a, a metro administration. So without, without, so without you being a, a prophet necessarily, um, Gareth, next year's election, I foresee status quo mostly. ANC high 50s, low 60s, DA stagnant, EFF maybe 7, 8%, COPE maybe like half percent more than what they got before. But I don't see great turbulence in well, the election two, results. Two things on that. The one is, yeah, I would say that at the moment the ANC is in a band from about 58 to 62. And I'd say that's roughly its maximum and minimum for the election, depending on how. It goes because these things fluctuate on current affairs. I'd say the DA is between 22 and 24, um, depending on how things go. It's it's a much more fragile percentage range for the DA, and it does fluctuate quite wildly depending on current events. Um, but I would say, yeah, pretty much stagnant, or it could get up to about 24. And I'd say the EF sort of 6 to 8%, maybe 9 if if, if it has a really good day at the office. Um, but the, the exciting thing is that we've got a poll in the field for the IRR, um, which we should get soon, um, which I'm really quite excited about, um, which will hopefully give us some idea specifically of where the EFF is. And it's also going to go into, go into issues of land and, um, favorability and Ramaphosa and Ram enthusiasm or all, all the stuff. Um, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see. So we can talk about this every single day. You know, 24 hours a day, and yet ANC still wins. <laughs> <laughs> and we think they idiots. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's okay. People at one point will just have to choose, uh, you know, get people to hold their place in the bread line as they go to the voting line to cast their vote for the ANC. So yeah. uh, that's, that's fine. Uh, 
All's well that ends well, hey? Well, I won't be here. I'm going to the Republic of Cape Town when it secedes. <laughs> it will def- have to de facto secede. It will never happen. Just like the SAA will never leave the government and ESCOM won't. It's the same, it's the same house in, it's the same wall in my house. The Western Cape is a part of the house and you they take, will not allow it. The Western Cape to is a beautiful pot plant. Dude, you've got a government in the Western Cape that's anti-gun and you want to secede against the government that has shown they will use maximum force against their populace. The Western Cape is not seceding anytime soon. No one in South Africa has balls for anything like that. It's not going to happen. At well, least the, the Spanish blows shit up. <clears throat> yeah, the Cape Party, uh, they, uh, they were in Cape Party, they were the most violence they'll do is, 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 um, deface, art. deface art. I mean, really. Let's, let's get real. The reality is if you really want to secede, then you need to be willing to go all the way. And, uh, I'm yet to find many South Africans who are willing to go all the way. You're on the wrong WhatsApp groups. Well, clearly. Get off the clearly. I love Melville groups about moaning about dog shit in the streets and come to the real ones, the revolutionary <laughs> radical ones. All right. Ones. Thank you, Ramon. <laughs> Thank you, Garrett. Garrett much thank you very much. much. Um, we can find you on Twitter, multiple accounts. You want to just pump them quickly? Yeah, it's, uh, well, my account's uh, at G Financial, and then these two quotes accounts are at quotes ANC and at opposition quotes. Awesome. And uh, we can read your work in Business Day. Um, yeah, I got a column in the business day and then we, we put out longer term stuff from the, from the institute, which you can get on the institute's Twitter account. Awesome. So as always, you can find us on, uh, Twitter at renegade underscore report on Facebook, the page and the group. Thank you so much for listening. I hope your week is better and less uh, shouty than Serena Williams. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.